This morning we'll be continuing our time in Matthew uh, chapter 27, uh, verses 11 through 44. The picture before you um, is one that is attributed to Hieronymus Bosch or one of his followers. There's some dispute over exactly who painted it, but nonetheless, um, it's in the early 1500s. And the title is Christ Carrying the Cross. The painting is hard to look at because the reality is there are these ghoulish and hideous characters that are surrounding Christ. And then the truth is, as we look at it, we may find ourselves struggling to look, but even to recognize that we are actually amongst this group. The truth is, as we come to the text today of Matthew 27, and Jesus, the last part of his Roman trial, and as we're going to see him early on the cross, I think we struggle at times to realize that we are less like Christ than we're willing to admit and more like the characters around Christ than we want to acknowledge. We often don't see ourselves on the wrong side, but as this picture and painting, I think kind of maybe that's the point of it, is that we struggle to recognize the truth of our depravity, the truth of our sinfulness. We imagine that we might be more like the person willing to carry the cross than Pilate's who's sentencing Jesus to get on it. The truth is, right, as we look at this, this story reminds us today that we aren't the heroes of the story. Jesus is. And unfortunately, guys, we're more like the cast of sinners. Therefore, we need someone who could rescue us. We need a perfect substitute, someone who could stand in our place and take the judgment for us. We need the one who is in the center of this cross, beholding his glory and his goodness. Today, we're going to look at this truth, the love of Christ displayed through the cross. We're going to see Christ's love displayed to us as our substitute, as he stands in our place. Matthew 27, 11 through 44 kind of shows us some different angles or points of the cross. One thing that stands out to us is there's injustice. And then there's great irony. And finally, as we see Christ coming to the cross, there's insults. And so Matthew has been walking us through this final days or hours of Jesus' life. We've, we studied a few weeks ago in Matthew 26 of Jesus' Jewish trial. As, as Judas led them there to the garden during the night and, and they arrested Jesus and all the disciples flee. And then he goes before the Jewish leaders who condemn him as a blasphemer, as one who's declaring to be the son of God. They don't have the power or authority to crucify him. And so early hours, Friday morning, again, that trial happened during the late hours, Thursday night. Sometime in the early hours of Friday morning, he's handed off to Pilate. And so Matthew 27 picks up the story. And we hear this first truth coming to us. The injustice of the cross. The injustice of the cross. Listen to what it begins, verse 11 of Matthew 27. <clears throat> now Jesus stood before the governor. That's Pilate. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said this line we've been hearing him say, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, so they're standing around, right, accusing him of things before Pilate, Jesus gives no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So again, what we hear is, is some of this Passover story, right? And what's happening here, this custom of the Jewish, uh, of the Romans during the, the, during the Passover. Notice what it says here. It talks about the fact is that they gave the feast, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. So this was an opportunity for the Romans to show how merciful they were. And so they were willing throughout the Passover, right, they would release each year one prisoner. And so this moment is kind of maybe Pilate's way to like protect himself, right? He's, he's offering up to show how merciful he is. But the reality is this sham of a trial is also looking, right, to get Pilate out of any trouble, right? He wants to pacify the Jewish leaders. He doesn't want to cause a riot, as you're going to see in a moment. We know that Pilate's already had some trouble. And the warning is, is kind of Caesar has his thumb on Pilate. Don't let anything else happen or you're out. And so Pilate sets before them two individuals, Jesus, who is called the Christ, or Barabbas. It's interesting that not many people find themselves in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Barabbas is one of those. In all four Gospels, we hear the name Barabbas. Now, if you notice here that when he talks about him in verse 16, Matthew just simply calls, simply calls him a notorious prisoner. Mark 15, Luke also records about him, but it says there that he's actually a murderer and an insurrectionist. He took part in an insurrection. He committed murder. John simply calls him a robber. But all four Gospels mention this man by the name of Barabbas. And I think the contrast is clear here in this moment of injustice. It's clear in Pilate's mind. There's no comparison between Barabbas and Jesus. One is clearly appearing innocent and the other is clearly guilty. And so he sets them before them to give them this opportunity to say, hey, make the right decision. Kind of get me out of jail free card, so to speak, for, for Pilate. But the injustice continues and this irony continues as the story unfolds. Look what happens. Verse 19. Besides, while Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. <clears throat> the just, injustice reeks further, right? Look what it says there. So Pilate's sitting on the judgment seat in verse 19. And notice who it is that sends word to him. Who sends word to him? His wife. And notice what she identifies. She says, have nothing to do with who? A righteous man. It's interesting, right? And we, we're going to see some moments. There's a lots of irony throughout this story unfolding. But Jesus here identifying from this Gentile woman, right? This pagan worshiper. I mean, she's the wife of a Roman governor, right? They worship all these gods. They bow to Caesar. And yet here she is identifying Jesus as a righteous man. While the most devout Jewish leaders who know their Bible really, really well see him as a blasphemer it's just the irony but the injustice is there and reeking forth right as the people are cheering right he says to them who do you want me to release to you and right and they said barabbas there in verse 21 they answer back they want barabbas it's just continued injustice right i mean matthew's trying to show us how <clears throat> How things are not going as they should. 
Right? I mean, the Jewish trial was one of full of injustice. It happened during late during the night. Why? So they could cover things up and not be seen in public daylight. We know that during that Jewish trial that the Jewish leaders who were supposed to sit as judges were acting as the prosecution. We know that, that, that um, during Jesus' Jewish trial, there was all these false witnesses who were lying. They were he- supposed to be held accountable, but they're not. Now we come to the Roman trial and and Pilate's running the sham of a trial and even his own wife's telling him, listen, this man's righteous. Don't have anything to do with him. Pilate, step away from this. It was Pastor Charlie Dates. He shared about one of the strangest lawsuits in U.S. court history. It happened in 2007. It was a Nebraska senator by the name of Ernie Chambers. I don't know if you've heard it. And his effort was a good one. He was trying to stop evil and injustice in the world. And in doing so, he filed maybe the strangest lawsuit ever, a lawsuit against God. Chambers' reasoning for filing a lawsuit against God was is because he believed that God was guilty of all of these natural disasters and birth defects and on and on. He just cites all these different things that have happened, all these evils in the world. And he says, listen, these are God's, God's doing. The lawsuit is dismissed with prejudice. The Nebraska court rules they couldn't properly notify God because they didn't have his address. And Chambers responded, well, God's omniscient. He surely knows that he's being sued and he should be in court, right? Now, we might laugh at that, but I think the reality is it shows us something. That we have a tendency when we look at our world and look at things happening that we think that God's the guilty one and we are not. You see, I think when we see that painting that there of Bosch there in the 1500s, we struggle to recognize that we are actually the guilty ones. And there it is, as that lawsuit is being charged against God, guess what? It seems to be the mindset of this text, that God's the guilty one, that Jesus is the guilty one, and we are not. And so listen to what Pilate says to them back in verse 22 and 23. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. When Pilate acknowledges that he has no clear charge against Jesus, look what he says there. Why? What evil has he done? Right? Pilate's clearly saying, hey, guys, I don't see any basis for the charges that you're bringing against this guy. But he wimps out. Why? Because he goes on and renders the guilty verdict in a moment, declaring that an innocent man is guilty and deserving of crucifixion. And the Jewish leaders are present and they're crying and shouting out. They want Jesus crucified. I think the reminder is, again, as we've been seeing, is that we're not the righteous man in the story. We're more like the cowardly pilot or the religious leaders and the self-righteousness that exist in them. Instead of acknowledging our sin and guilt, we often try to excuse it as, well, my problems really aren't that bad or this is what makes me happy or this is what seems right in my own eyes. It seems to be the desire of our heart. Guys, all of this, this injustice reminds us that we need a substitute. He suffered at the hands of our injustice so the penalty of our sin could be dealt with on the cross. Matthew is trying to show us, guys, I want you to see that God is bringing about his plan through the hands of sinful men. That people didn't embrace Christ. They didn't love him. But it all the more screams, we need a Savior. We need rescuing from our evil hearts. As we study this morning in Sunday school about the day in Noah's time, it says the Lord saw that the inclination of every person's heart was continually evil. 
continually. So guys, the love of Christ is being displayed despite the injustice of the cross. But it's not only injustice that Jesus is enduring. There's also the irony of the cross. Look what it says here, verses 24 through 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd. Now, that's interesting, right? Because that's what the Jewish people do. They have all their ceremonial washings, right? Where they wash their hands to clean themselves, to purify themselves. Pilate's, in a way, maybe mocking their, their, their rituals. And he washes his hand before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. The word irony is often used to describe an event of being the opposite of what you would expect, right? I mean, like if you heard today that the police station got robbed, you'd be like, what? How does that happen? Right? Or maybe somebody getting on po- on Facebook and making a post about how useless Facebook is. It's like, what? Well, hey, why are you doing that, right? Like, I mean, some things are just ironic. But ir- irony is not just used to show us the opposite of what we would expect. There's also moments of irony that authors use, right, to help us see as we watch a story this, that we see clearly what's happening or what's being said and the character just doesn't seem to catch it, right? The character's saying something and we're like, dude, you're missing it. Do you not see the irony in what you're saying? Well, there's some irony unveiling in this text here. Listen to what Pilate says. He washes his hands before the crowd and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Well, I mean, he wants to think that he's innocent, but clearly in a few moments, he's going to render the verdict as guilty and deserving of crucifixion. Pilate thinks that he can seemingly just get away with it, right? But the truth is, Pilate is guilty. There's irony dripping further in the people's response in verse 25. Look what they answer back to him. They say, his blood shall be on us and our children. Now, in other words, they're saying, if this man's actually innocent, then we're guilty. And we'll take that upon ourselves. We'll take his blood on our hands. If he's actually who he says he is, then we'll incur the guilt of that. The truth is, this statement has been one that's been rich with meaning. It's, it's been one that's been used throughout the years of much anti-Semitism, much anti-Jewish thought. But the truth is, this doesn't clearly mean that God's going to be done with the Jewish people. Why? Because the disciples who become the apostles, right, are clearly all Jewish. And if you show up in Acts chapter 2, on the day when the Holy Spirit is poured out, guess what? 2,000 plus people are saved, and those people are Jewish But I think nonetheless, it's still a warning, a great irony. Why? Because the people don't realize what they're saying. Listen again, their answer. And the people all answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They're in some way invoking what might be a curse upon them. But the good news is, is that God is merciful and gracious. And although their evil intentions do, yes, lead to the Son of God being crucified on the cross, God uses this moment for their and our good. It's the only way to provide substitution. It's the only way to provide forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> it's an ironic moment, but God answers in a greater way than they could ever have imagined. But I believe the greatest irony in this story revolves around that other man who is set up to be released, Barabbas. Look what it says in verse 26. Then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Barabbas' name itself is quite ironic, right? Just look at it for a moment. The word bar means son of, and then Abba 
which means the word for father. So Barabbas' name means son of the father, which is ironic, right? Because this son of the father who is guilty is being let free, while the true son of the father who is innocent is being declared guilty and dying in our place. That's the irony that's happening. I think it's the greatest irony here. An innocent man is dying while a guilty man goes free. Notice what happens. He says, then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus. We've talked about it in a few previous sermons, but the reality is the scourging would involve a, a leather whip, right? And there would have been pieces of bone and metal and potentially glass. And Jesus would have been naked and tied to a post and they would have been whipping him. And scholars and historians tell us that oftentimes the scourging itself was enough to kill a person. Often it left their intestines being exposed. I mean, it's a gruesome. And we know that Jesus' scourging is serious to the point at which we're going to hear in a few moments that someone else has to carry the cross for him. But I think all of this, maybe ask a question, does this not offend us? Does it not feel wrong? And I think that often reveals what we don't see in the painting. That we're the guilty, grotesque people in that image. And there in the middle is the innocent one who dies for our sin. Indeed, it's the ultimate irony. It's the ultimate injustice. But that's the gospel. The gospel declares that you and I are the Barabbas. We're the guilty. And that Jesus, who's the innocent, goes and dies in our place so that we, the guilty, might go free. It's this hope of the gospel. It's this great irony that this man by the name of Barabbas, this son of the father, will be released. Why? That you and I might become sons and daughters of the father. By the true son, the innocent son. And the temptation might be, as we think about that painting, we want to turn our face away. As we hear this story, we may want to turn our face away. But guys, I want to compel us not to turn our face away. To not hide in shame. Why? For behold the man upon the cross. My sin and your sin upon his shoulders. Behold, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Behold, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It's this hope of the gospel. And yes, there's injustice. Yes, there's great irony. But the truth is all of that points to the fact of how much we desperately need a sinless Savior. We need a substitute. We need rescue. So we've seen the injustice of the cross, the irony of the cross, and now we come to the insults of the cross. Pick up with me, if you would, in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him. They mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found found a man of Cyrene, northern Africa, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The categories are overlapping, right? There's obviously insults and injustice. There's great irony that's unfolding here. But notice how they're mocking him, right? Again, these insults, this mocking, right? They take him, they strip him, they put the scarlet robe on him. Verse 28, the scarlet robe, the sign of, of, of dignitaries, right? The sign of kings and queens, right? That's their color. But notice what the crown they put on. They, they twist and put a crown of thorns. They, usually the staff is there, the scepter there to show that he's the king, he's ruling. But instead they put this little weak reed in there. And then they begin to spit on him and mock him. And they bow before him in a mocking way saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Even then he's put on the cross and they put that title over him, King of the Jews. But it's mockery. It's just this way of, of, of acknowledging that you are not who you say you are. You say that you're the king of the Jews. You say that you're the son of God. Look at how you're being treated. And in the midst of that, right, we, we as the readers, as followers of Christ, as those who have professed faith that this is our Lord and Savior, say that you don't see how great of a king he truly is. You're not saying who this king truly is. You're putting the wrong crown on his head. That's not the right read. That's not the way to speak to the God of the universe. I mean, if, if you've ever wondered about true humility, to have some other man or men spit in your face and not respond, the God of the universe being spit and mocked and insulted and stripped naked and exposed... Guys, if you've ever wondered how deep and how bad is the my sinful depravity, this text screams to you and I, there is no other way. This is why when Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if it be possible, may this cup pass from me. There was no answer. Why? Because there is no other way to rescue us. There's no other way to redeem us. Again, the scourging is so severe, as you notice there in verse 32, they find a man of, of Cyrene, again, northern Africa, Simon by name. He has to compel, he's compelled this man to carry his cross. Jesus obviously at a place in which physically he has been beaten nearly to death. Notice that the insults that continue further, verse 34. While he's on there coming to the cross, they offer him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Why? Because gall is this bitter herb. At times it can even be poisonous. It's just a further mocking, right? I mean, this man's there literally about to die. And they give him a drink to try to somehow refresh him. But that in itself is a mockery. It's an insult. But the reality is while they're insulting him and doing all these things, they're actually fulfilling Psalm 22. And throughout this passage, I want to encourage you today, maybe as you go home, read Psalm 22. You're going to hear moment after moment, like verse 18 that says this in Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But it wasn't only the Roman soldiers who were insulting him. Listen as the text unfolds further, verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Which again is another statement, the exact words of Psalm 22, 7. All who see me mock me. They, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. It's the very thing Matthew's saying. Guys, this is a fulfillment. He's the suffering Savior. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
Right? They're mocking him. They're insulting him. The very thing that he said, right? That he said, listen, as you see this temple, he said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it or I'll raise it up on the third day. Then they're taking his words and twisting it. Why? Because he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple, as John says, the temple of his body. But they're taking his words and they're using it to blaspheme him and twist them. Has that ever happened to you? Somebody ever just taken your words and twisted them? It's not at all what you intended or meant, but they just took them to manipulate them. Might we ask, what does Jesus do in this moment when he's insulted and mocked and people are twisting his words? How does he respond to injustice? How does he respond to being spit in the face? How does he respond to someone smacking him and punching him? How does he respond to being jeered and made fun of? He doesn't. I think that's what's so amazing. I mean, Pilate is struck by it, right? I mean, he's like, do you not hear what they're saying about you, dude? Like, defend yourself already. But guys, I think Peter uses this to say that Jesus, this is a moment of Jesus setting an example for us of how we might respond when we face injustice and insults and reviles and on and on. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23. For to this you have been called. This is your calling. It may not be a calling you want, but Peter says, nonetheless, it is for those of us that are in Christ. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not what? When he was reviled, he did not what? Revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Guys, Peter says this is, notice what he says, Guys, this is an example. This is the footsteps that you are to follow. You may have had a great earthly father or mother or grandmother or grandfather who got it right continually, or you may have had a tyrant in your home. But he says, nonetheless, I want you to know this is the example that you are to follow. This is the one whom you follow. This is the one whom you confess as Savior and Lord. This is your master. And he says, listen, when he's reviled, he doesn't revile in return. When he suffers, he doesn't threaten. Guys, this isn't passivism. This isn't like be like be a doormat and let people walk all over you. No, look what he says. Look what he says. Why does he not do these things? Why is he quiet? Notice what Peter says is absolutely key. Verse 23 here. He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who what? Judges justly. He trusts that his God, his Father, is sovereign. And that he sees and he knows and he will handle and he will deal with it all. I think it has to remind us that trusting in the sovereignty of God means that we don't have to always set the record straight. But Peter says, guys, I want you to know this is not only an example, this is also your power. The power to overcome, having to repay evil for evil, of having to get revenge on those who have done you wrong or done your family wrong or the bitterness that you hold against that person or those individuals right i I think even earlier as we were singing bind us together i think what a moment for a church to sing those words in the midst right of so much division in our culture racially politically right about masks and different decisions and vaccines and on and on what a moment for the church to sing bind us together lord 
Bind us together, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us love one another. I mean, man, what a moment to sing those words. Just ringing in my soul over there as I sang it. Like, God, help us. Yes, this. Guys, it's not only an example, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we no longer have to live like the rest of the world. We don't have to say whatever comes to mind. I wonder, when was the last time that you being silent in the face of injustice or insults or even an argument and it surprised your spouse? Maybe it surprised your parents or a teacher? Could I ask, Maybe, how is Jesus silence and living out the very words that Brother Todd read earlier, James 1.19? Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. How is Jesus silence and living out this very verse? How is it impacting your responses on social media? How might this text, I'll just be honest, one of the things I've thought about in application to me of this example is how is this going to impact the way I interact with referees and umpires? When I think they don't get the call right or they're not treating my kids the same as I think they're treating somebody else's kid. Can I just, in that moment, do I have to always stand up and shout and say something? Guys, we need to realize that silence doesn't mean that we don't have something to say, but not that everything has to be said. In fact, we need to learn to be slow to speak always. That's what he says. Everyone should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So that should be our our motto and our mindset all the time, but especially when all we want to do is speak the truth, but we can't do it in love. And yeah, it happens in our daily life. It happens in social media. But let's be honest, it happens a lot in our homes, doesn't it? With our spouses and our kids. I'll be honest, it's, it's just a stinging text to me. I struggle sometimes with my mouth just running it. Saying stupid stuff, whether again that's to my wife or to my kids or at the ball game. And so, and so here's a couple of proverbs that I just try to meditate on because when I see Jesus' example and I know that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to indwell us, I just keep crying out, God, would you change me? Listen to these just a couple of proverbs I want to share with you. Proverbs ten nineteen. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Simply this, many words, much sin, right? Much words, much sin. Proverbs twenty nine eleven: a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool gives full vent to his anger, just lets it out. Right? Like, I just can't hold it in anymore. And just, man, it just comes spewing out. I, I remember Emily and I were, were in counseling once, and the counselor just asked, how often do we apply that same rule to when we feel like we can't hold it anymore to tell people how much we love them and care about them. We can be really easy, right? Like not to have to share like, oh, how much I love you, how much I appreciate it, how much I care about you. I can't hold it anymore. I just got to say it. But like, man, when it comes to anger, we just like unfilter that bad boy and just like, it's like turn the air on when you jump into a hot car and bam, we just fire it out, spew it everywhere. The Bible warns guys that that is the way the fool lives. And that's why this text just keeps screaming to me, I need a Savior, I need a substitute. Because I don't get it right. I see my sinful heart, I see my sinful thoughts and desires and motives. Jesus, man, he's been insulting. Insulted, yeah, from the Roman soldiers who are mocking him. Soldiers being insulted by the, the, the 
pilgrims who have come in for Passover, right, who are selling these Jews from different lands, are walking by and seeing him there on the cross and mocking him. But then lastly, it comes from the Jewish leaders. Look what it says, verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Again, that's a quoting of Psalm 22. But for a moment, I think we need to peel back maybe the layers on these insults here. These insults reveal a deep irony because the religious leaders wanted him to be crucified. Why? Because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So their thought is this. This guy's saying he's the son of God, but there's no way he could be the son of God. Why? Because he's on the cross. And if you're on the cross, that means you're cursed. And there's no way God would let his son be a curse. Would he? Jesus, as Isaiah 53 says, is despised and rejected a man of sorrows from whom others hide their face. But guys, this moment of insults and irony and injustice is actually our hope. Why? Because on that cursed tree is our Savior. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming what? A curse for us. That's the gospel. For it is written, Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says, listen, guys, I want you to know that, yes, they believe he's cursed and they're insulting, right? If you are the son of God, how could you be the son of God? You're on the cursed tree. The law says you're cursed. And Paul says, that's the very thing. Why? Because he's dying in our place. We are the cursed ones. And he's our substitute saying, I'll take your curse upon me. I'll stand in your place and take the judgment and the wrath of God. And says, listen, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. What? That we might be saved by faith. By no work of your own, you can be saved and forgiven. And so that we, he says there, might receive the promised spirit through faith. To the unbeliever today, I think this text has to say to you, where do you see yourself? As you examine that painting, where do you find yourself in the midst of it? Do you see the truth, the grotesque, the gruelingness, maybe not on your face like that painting, but the reality is it's on your heart, hidden where no one can see? It, it says there, as the text ends, verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew doesn't record it, but Luke 23 records for us that one of these robbers, one of these criminals that's on Jesus crucified beside him has a change of heart. He begins to acknowledge that this man is sinless, right? And, but we're getting justly what our deeds deserve. And he says to him in verse 42 of Luke 23, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I love the response. Luke 23, 43. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, to this man, this criminal, who's dying on the cross next to him, who's been insulting him just a few moments before. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. That is the heart of our Savior to you and I. Guys, that, that, that guy on the cross has nothing to offer. 
He's not going to show up in church and write a big check. He's not going on a mission trip. He's not going to be baptized this Sunday. He has nothing seemingly in the eyes of the world to offer but the one thing that God delights in. Faith in the Son. Acknowledgement that we can't save ourselves, but there's a substitute in our place. It's the hope of the gospel. Today I compel you who are not in Christ, lay down your rebellion. The curse is against you. But there is a curse bearer and a curse breaker. And that someone is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you today turn unto him, away from your sin, unto Christ that you might be saved? Guys, the good news is even our greatest insults and our greatest acts of injustice can be overcome by the cross. Nothing you have done is too much. To the church today, I've already shared, but man, I think this text strikes at my pride. I have a tendency to think of myself more highly than I should. The truth is, I'm not like Pilate's brave wife who's trying to defend Jesus. I'm not the obedient bystander, Simon, who's helping carry the cross. And the reality is, I know deep down, I'm not the suffering servant. No, in fact, I'm the opposite. I'm the Barabbas. I'm the self-righteous religious leader crying out, crucify him. I'm the angry crowd, the mob that's jeering and yelling for his death. The truth is we're enslaved to the God of this world and we're doing His bidding. But praise God, He doesn't leave us like that. That there is a God who comes to rescue us and bring us into His family. And the way He does that is we must, someone must receive our penalty. The one that we deserve. And guys, the Bible says that someone is Jesus. Might that move us as a church just to be compelled to worship Him? Guys, I mean, isn't it eerily quiet? There's no disciples here clamoring for his release. He's dying rejected and alone. Might this just compel you and I today to say that, guess what? It's not about what we have done, but what he's done for us. I want to compel you today as you see the Savior dying for you and I in the midst of our sin. It doesn't call you, I need to just do more and more and more. No, we need to rest in him. Your performance in the past and your performance this week hasn't earned God's love and it never will. So maybe you've had the best of weeks or the worst of weeks. I want to compel you no matter what, come and rescue and rest in Christ crucified. Guys, His love isn't based upon our worthiness, but His worth. It's who He is. I want to compel you today to trust and rest in Christ alone. Let us exalt. Let us, what the world mocks and the world jeers, this one on the cursed tree, that's our Savior. And let us not only worship Him with our lips, but guys, with our lives, and to do so in humility. As Peter says, He set an example for us. Let us be the humble and the meek of this earth. Yes, we're going to experience injustice. You're going to experience insults and reviling. It may be from the person that you said for better or for worse to. It may be from the own own children you gave birth to. It may be someone that used to be your best friend. But guys, let us in response show love and grace. Why? Because that's how our Savior's treated us. And that's how He continues to treat us. Let this text soften our hearts to one another. Let it compel us to bow before our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you.
for Christ and Him crucified. Indeed, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. We love you, Lord. We praise you for sending the perfect substitute to rescue us from our sin. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.